you. Matthew chapter 12. I want to talk to you this morning about the greater family. When I was a brand new Christian, I had a phone conversation one day with one of my family members, and it did not go well. In fact, it went very, very poorly. So poorly, in fact, that I was utterly and completely discouraged in my spirit when I hung up the phone. And about that same time, almost simultaneous to hanging up the phone, the phone rang again, and it was a dear friend who was saved. He was converted to Christ about the same time as I was. And he said, hey, he asked me how I was doing. I said, not so good. He said, oh, I want to share with you uh, something God just gave me. And it was Psalm 27 in verse 10, where it says, When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And I was just in the beginning stages of learning about a greater family than the one I had experienced up until the time I was converted to Christ. One of the hardest yet necessary things I've ever had to do as a a new Christian was to declare my allegiance to Jesus. To my family. It was one thing to share with my friends. It was another thing to share with work, fellow employees. And that wasn't so hard for me. My zeal just sort of took over there. But when it came to family, I don't know. There was just something arresting about that. It was very difficult for me. And I know that many of you have experienced very similar things. And probably because you recognize that there's a, there's a real possible sense of alienation that could take place, variance that could take place as a result of this. But what I came to find out was that God was ushering and had ushered me, I just hadn't realized it, into a greater family. A much, when I say greater, I mean much bigger, broader family than my earthly family, where I call people brothers and sisters and don't normally call them fathers and mothers, but I just, just as well could. A greater family. Uh, Christians talk about the Great Commission. That's in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. It's not great in the sense of being better. It's great in the sense of being bigger. He said to that same group of people, only a more refined group, uh, a few years earlier, I'm going to give you a narrower commission. Just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That would be a small commission. (laughs) But in that sense, he said, I want you to go to the whole world. That's a great commission. That's the sense in which I'm using the word great this morning. The title, the greater family. Is the bigger, the broader family that you come into relationship with. When you place your faith in Jesus. In a sense, those who place their faith in Jesus come into this greater, this bigger, this broader family. And that changes everything. It changes even your allegiance to your natural family. And that's where the rub occurs, right? Because theoretically, you should have a greater love for your natural family, even though in their hearts and minds it isn't always perceived as such. 
If you were with us uh, last week, we've been doing this series called Cliffhangers. We're going to these narratives in the gospel accounts where Jesus leaves individuals and groups of people sort of hanging with his, with his words. Actually, he leaves us hanging. He doesn't tell us what people do. Even Nicodemus, that great story of the new birth, we don't really know what Nicodemus did with it, at least at the time until later on when he shows up after Jesus died. We know he embraced the Christ. Last week, we, we were in John 7, where Jesus is told by his brothers, hey, go up to the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Go show yourself. Nobody who wants the Messianic label stamped on him does it in secret. Go show yourself. They were disingenuous. They didn't believe in him, verse 5 says, and we saw that last week. This is that family that was still part of the lesser family. They had not placed their faith in, the, in Jesus. In fact, we don't know that all of them ever did place their faith in Jesus. We know some of them did. It's that same family that shows up at this house where we're at in, in Matthew chapter 12. It's been a rough day. One of the roughest that Jesus has ever had. And now he's in this house. It's packed to the gills. So much so, they can't even eat. They're just sardined in there. And Jesus is talking. He's preaching. And his Suddenly, verse 46 says, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now a text out of context is a pretext. And I don't want to go there. That 46th verse, verse hearkens us to the, the, the rest of chapter 12. In this day in the life of Christ, which is one of his hardest days. It's one confrontation after another as his enemies are bent on destroying him. They'd even set up in verses 9 through 14, they even set up a time where, uh, where Jesus on the Sabbath is, is teaching and they bring a guy with a withered hand. If you read the account, it's not like the guy comes looking for Jesus. In fact, we don't even know if the guy just showed up at a withered hand. But they, the, the context seems to indicate that Jesus' enemies got the guy, planted him to see if Jesus would heal him. In fact, this is one of the most... You, you, you look at the compassionate ministries of Jesus, you don't see it here. In fact, it's in this context that Jesus, knowing their hearts, points to the guy with the withered hand. He says, stretch out your hand. And the guy does what he's never done before. He stretches his hand out and he's healed. No faith involved or anything. From there, Jesus is accused of casting out Demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, or in other words, Satan himself. He says, you've just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He's going back and forth with these guys. He said, you're a brood of vipers, he says to him. I think in verse 40 or 34. He says in verse 42 and following, he says, look, look, look at me. He says, something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon is before you. And they're going, are you kidding me? Greater than Jonah, the great revivalist prophet? Greater than Solomon, the wisest man to ever live? And it's in this context 
if it isn't enough that he's got these enemies going back and forth, his family shows up. I mean, they, they show up. In fact, Mark's account tells us what was happening in their heads as they made their way to this packed house. And there it is. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Have you ever read that? This would be Mary, his four brothers we alluded to last week, and a couple of sisters. They, are, they think that he's, he's nuts. They, they love Jesus, but he, he's, just, he's gone too far. So picture this. Marcus tells us the place is packed. And it's a mixed audience. You got admirers, you got wonders, you got seekers, you got critics, you've got followers, you've got haters, you've got conspirators who are trying to kill him. Every, all of them, all of them in the same room. I was thinking about this. What if that's what I faced every time I got in the pulpit? Which one are the conspirators? And which one are the haters? And what if I just struck out? I came across this. Somebody sh- shared this with me. The other day. How would you like this? This is not a setup. This is not a joke. This actually happened. Watch this. Son, don't go to sleep while I'm talking. Hey, hey, hey. Don't, don't, don't you lay your head back. I, I'm, I'm important. I'm somebody. Now, you might do your English teacher that way. But I'm not teaching English. I'm teaching eternal life here. I love you. You know I love you. Have I convinced you I love you? Uh, yeah. You better th- you better nod your head. Yes. All right. Come on. Put it up there. All right. You stay awake and you listen to me. You say, well, he may never come back. Well, he ain't here now. And where have you been, Mr. Underwood? And I noticed on the calendar I'm supposed to marry y'all. What makes you think I'd marry you? You're one of the sorriest church members I have. You're not worth 15 cents. And you want me to marry you to her? And you want to marry him? And he don't even know where he belongs? And you don't even know where you belong? Now, uh, let me tell you all everybody here. Now, if we were to continue to play the tape, he actually, the reason why Doug didn't play the rest of it is because actually he gets after the guy in the sound booth. He says, you got your own club going back there. And I'm inspired, so there's a few of you I want. I'm kidding. That's not true. (laughs) I don't have to do that. Because if I preach the Word of God, the Spirit of God works with the Word of God to touch and convict hearts, doesn't he? So you don't have to do that kind of stuff. I think that guy's in trouble last I checked, but anyway. There is a mixed audience in this house as there is in this room right here. I don't know your hearts. I don't know what's going on in your hearts right now. But I I know this, that there are some of you here that are thinking, would you just close it down? Would you just bring this to a conclusion? I didn't come here. I I came here to watch a baptism or I came here, whatever. And some of you are thinking, no, give us more. I want more. I want to hear the word of God. And some of you are thinking, I don't. I'm not really sure, and you're somewhere in between. Jesus was preaching to mixed audiences all the time. All the time. And 
if it's not enough, he's got a mixed audience. He's got a family that comes in here and they're, they're bobbing their heads trying to get in. They can't get in the house because it's so packed out. And, and they're, they're trying to, they're sort of on the outside looking in in more ways than one. And these, the things that they're hearing about Jesus, Mary and his brothers and his sisters, they're upsetting, embarrassing to the family, causing a public stir. They're not so upset and they're so, not so concerned about the message that Jesus is preaching as the trouble he's stirring. They can't even get into place. Their heads are bobbing up and down trying to get in. Some dude sees them. Hey, Jesus, your mom's out there and your, and your family member, your brothers and sisters are out there. When I first came to Christ, I was, you know, very zealous. And my family members are very zealous. They're just like me. Our personalities are all identical. Not, well, they're not identical, but a lot alike. And so they were just as feisty as I was coming back at me. And I mean, they literally made a trail to my house. Knocking on the door, making phone calls, writing nasty letters. And my dad shows up. And he says, Pat, mark my words, you're going to get over this in six months. It's like I had a virus or something. But outsiders looking in never see things quite as clearly, do they? They don't even hear things quite as clearly. I was at a conference a few weeks back where I was teaching on evangelism at a workshop. The workshop was packed out. It was a great time. I had great fellowship with these men and women that were there. And afterwards, I was talking back and forth, sharing some of the substance of what I had been talking about. And one guy, an old friend shows up and says, hey, Way to go on your teaching. And I looked at him. He's kind of a smart aleck. I, and I reckon, even though it was full, I didn't see him in the room. I said, I didn't see you. He goes, I wasn't there. I was in the room in another workshop, but your voice was coming through. <laughs> okay. But I also got what he was saying. He heard my voice, but he couldn't understand my words. And that's where some of you are this morning. You're like those that were with the Apostle Paul. He wasn't Paul, he was Saul at the time. Remember his story? He's seeking to take Christians and incarcerate them and, and persecute them, put them in prison. And as he tells his story in Jerusalem one day through a mad mob, Acts 22 verse 9 records that when he tells the story, he puts a little nuance on his, on his story. He says, I heard a voice from heaven. I fell down. He's speaking of the voice of Jesus that spoke to him, that saved him. Then he describes those who were with him as having heard the voice, but they didn't understand it. Have you ever read that? That's exactly where some of you are at this morning. You hear the word of God. You hear the testimonies you heard in the baptismal. But it's not making sense. Maybe it is a little bit, but it's it's a little blurry to you. That was the case with with Jesus's very own family. And yet Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 10, just a, a, a page behind there, you, don't, you can just go there, I'll just read it. He says in verse 34, he says, don't think that I, I've come, there it is, to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own house. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And I just thought of this now. You heard my son give his testimony. And, and during that time, just before he broke, I, I, I've shared it before. I was a puddle of tears in bed one night, crying out to God on his behalf. And God spoke to my heart and said to me, you're not trusting me. You would not be so anxious right now if you were trusting me. I was so broken up over my son. And I could just sense the Lord say, relax, trust me. And I made a commitment like I've rarely made before, laying there in bed. And I can remember after making that commitment, how God gave me a peace, a total peace. My son didn't get better anytime soon. In fact, he got worse. But I had peace because my loyalty, my allegiance was to Jesus and not to my son, much as I loved him. So in this situation, some guy sees Jesus' mother and his brothers and they say, hey, I know you're dealing with a lot of people, but your mom and your, and your sibs are outside here. By the way, the truth is that this scene would repeat itself throughout the narratives where they were trying to get in. There's other, there's other situations like this where Jesus is teaching in packed circumstances, mixed audiences. The only reason this one makes the big book, the only reason this one makes the Bible, is not because Jesus did a miracle, because he doesn't do a miracle in this context. He's just teaching and preaching, which he did all the time. The reason this makes the Bible is because the way he responded to that man. So that you and I can insert ourselves into this situation. And ask ourselves how we would respond to this. And whether or not we have that same attitude. Jesus says, here's my mother. Here are my brothers. That response is the reason that made the Bible. So that you and I would ask ourselves whether or not our allegiance is with Jesus and the greater family. I mean, this sounds like the ultimate slam, doesn't it? Boom! I was in a house one day where I was talking to a guy who wasn't, he and his wife had made professions of faith. They hadn't been in church for a while. They weren't doing well spiritually. It was, that was obvious. So I, I looked him right in the eye and I said to him, I said, how is your walk with God going? And he was an honest guy. He said, well, not very good. His wife says, oh, please, honey, speak for yourself. To which he looked at his wife and said, I think I can speak for the two of us. Great line. I didn't have to say anymore. Now, most commentators would point out that Jesus is not disrespecting his family when he says, you know, here's my mother, here are my brothers, these are my sisters. But you cannot tell me that they weren't offended by that statement. And I say that because I've heard that, you know, that tact is the art of making a point without making an enemy. Those are good words, but they don't usually hold true when it comes to family. And I'm, 
whenever the gospel comes into play, it cuts. I once, you can try to sugarcoat it. And a lot of people do. But if you bring the gospel in and you bring it with clarity, people will be offended, especially family. I once shared Christ with a guy and he turned around and told his wife, he just told me I'm going to hell. I never said he was going to hell, but he got it. He figured it out. If I take Jesus' words literally, and I do, all the tact in the world will not assuage the power of the gospel. I'm not saying to be rough or coarse in your presentation. Now, I'm not saying that at all. We should try to be as gracious. Our words should be gracious. But when the gospel comes in, it comes in deep, especially with family. Stretching out his hands, verse 49, over his disciples. Because remember, it's a mixed group, so he's, he's identifying the followers here. He said, there, here it is. Here's my mother and my brothers. Clearly identifying with his followers. Jesus was not denouncing his family. He was announcing a greater family. One that everybody comes into if they place their faith in Christ. And here's the clincher. He says in verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So then, the key to entering the greater family of God is to do the will of the Father. Let me give that to you again. Because some of you are like Jesus' family. You're on the outside looking in right now. So if you want to get into the greater family, the key is to do the will of the Father. You say, where does it, does it say that again? Oh yeah, over and over again in the Bible. In fact, Jesus said that there is coming an epic day, and some of you are going to be there on this day, and, and, and God help you. He won't help you. There's no help left if you're there. It's the day of judgment when he says, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast demons out in your name? Did we not do wonderful things in your name? And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Did you notice the beginning? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father. That's how you get in. You got to do the will of the Father. Well, what is the will of the Father? I'm glad you asked. Here it is. Jesus said, this is the will of the Father. That you look, don't just say, you look on the Son. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And guess what? You get raised up on the last day. The rest of you are toast forever. The will of the Father is what you must do. One day, somebody came to Jesus and said, what good thing must we, what good work must we do to do the works 
of the Father, of God. He said, here's the good work. Believe on him whom he sent. Here is the will of the Father. This is what you do. You don't say, though it may be verbalized. I mean, it might come out that way. You trust. You embrace. You believe on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You look to him with the eyes of faith, with a heart that's broken, believing in his death and resurrection. And you'll have eternal life, and you'll raise up on the last day. What a deal, huh? What a deal. Four things, and we're done. Well, by the way, before I tell you these, what did Jesus' family do about this? They're out there. They're hearing him. Hey, your mom's out here in the sibs. Really? Here's my mom. Here are my brothers and sisters. Besides being cut to the heart, which of course they had to be, what did they do about this? You know what the answer is? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. He leaves us hanging. Now that's not completely true. Because we know some would do something with it. The real question really is, what are you going to do about it? Some of you are right with Mary and James and Jude and Simon and Joseph, the four brothers of Jesus and his two sisters. You're outsiders. You're looking in. Would you like to come in and be a part of the greater family? Four truths about the greater family, and we'll wrap it up. Number one, the greater family, God's greater family is blood-related. We're blood-related. But now, it says, in, now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. So now you Gentiles who are no longer strangers and foreigners, you are are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's, what? His family. God's greater family is blood related. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that will draw you near. Secondly, God's greater family has no racial no religious, no social, no, no, not, not, not gender, nor even political barriers. They're all broken down in the greater family. Three amens. Praise God. Got some work to do here. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek Slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah! God's greater family has no racial, no religious, no social, no gender, no political barriers. If you're in Christ, you're in the greater family. Thirdly, God's greater family is hallmarked by love for one another. Let brotherly love continue. Amen? Vance Havner once said, there are fundamental fellowships that are right in their dispensations and wrong on their dispositions. Amen to that. No other time in the history of the church was like those first three centuries for a hundred different reasons, but not the least of which was 
Even the unconverted, even the unsaved, even the outsiders looking in could see. Those outside looking in could see. And they would say, Tertullian would tell us, they keep saying, I mean, just look at them. They love one another. Oh, how they love one another. It was powerful. And if we could just reverse something in your minds, remember, here's Jesus. He's got mom. He's got brothers and sisters. They're all outside. They're outsiders looking in. They're trying to get in. Somebody says they're out there. He says, here's my mom. Here's my brothers. Here's my sisters. Now that hurts. But how affirming that had to be to his disciples. Huh? How affirming the love of Jesus to those who had entered into the greater family. That had to be very affirming. The greater family is hallmarked by love. Some of you are just begging to be loved. You come from families. You come from situations where you haven't been loved. Your parents haven't loved you. They've, some have abandoned you. Some have situations where you just, you're, you're just in and out of what you think is love and you, have no, you don't even have a clue as to what love is. Here is the love of God in Jesus Christ. You want to know what love is? Love is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. He will love you. Oh, he already has. He doesn't have to prove his love for you anymore. He died for you and rose again. You love him back by trusting him. You come into a greater family where there's real love. So many of you are missing right now. And finally... God's greater family requires a birth certificate. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Mary and Jesus' brothers were on the outside looking in, in more ways than one. They were still a part of the lesser family. Now we know that Mary, and we know that James, and we know that Jude would become a part of the greater family. We can't say for sure the others did. The real question is, are you? Are you a part of that greater family? Some of you flat out are not, and you know it. Will you become a part of that greater family? Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Would you enter into that love? And come into a greater family?